Well, hello, and welcome to the Flip Flops podcast. I'm your host, Angelique Gay, and this is 40% Facts. What started as an inside joke on a girl's road trip to New York City has become a full-on series featuring four creative women who we like to say each bring 10% to the table. Today, we are joined by a very special mystery guest, but I'll let Annabelle tell you all about her. Enjoy. I'm so excited. Hi, girls. Good Hello. morning. Happy Galentine's. Hey, what I a just... good point. What a hey. great Galentine's celebration. Exciting. It's really exciting. This is a huge, huge deal. <laughs> well, <laughs> do you know if Emily's joining us or is she maybe? She's just a maybe, I think right? she's a maybe, but I told her she can come and go as she pleases with the baby. So yeah, got it. So we're just waiting for the guest. I almost said her name. Oh my God, Annabelle. I how are you guys doing anyway? Really good. Chloe had a fever all weekend and I was really scared that this wouldn't happen today. But then this morning her fever was gone. It was very oh, strange. Good. Yeah, that's the way it works, right? With kids, they're so weird. It's so weird. It was like she was in an oven and then this morning totally gone and fine. Yep. Valentine's Day party. Oh, I'm doing much better. Off I go to school. That's great. <laughs> so I get to be here with you all. We we see that they've joined. Very good. And, <laughs> and, mm-hmm. So good morning, everyone. It's Galentine's Day, and we are starting a new series on Forty Percent Box where we invite a mystery guest. So Annabelle, take it away. All right. Okay. Well, first, I spent an inordinate amount of time writing up this write up for, for this morning. I was very stressed out at dinner last night. But anyway, <laughs> hopefully, I do them a service by with this intro. Okay. So, and getting if not, started. I've installed a trap underneath where you're sitting, and you will get sucked down. All right. That so. sounds good. All right. So, born in Brazil, this guest grew up and lived in many places across the globe, including Thailand, Paris, Ottawa, Banff, Montreal, Toronto, and L.A. This guest got an early break in entertainment with little-known acts like The Wolfman in a Halloween-themed school musical, (laughs) a local teen TV host on a TV show called Trash, and an occasional guest on a local college radio show hosted by Tom Green. This guest started honing their comedy chops in Montreal on open mic stages, eventually finding themselves performing on countless stages and festivals across the country, snagging a Canadian Comedy Award and a Juno nomination for their comedy acts, something I like to- completely forgot happened. They've even opened for Norm MacDonald and Dana Carvey. But in addition to their hilarious stage presence, they have written for comedians like Sarah Silverman, Broad City, Wanda Sykes, and Jim Gaffigan at Just for Laughs. As well as they've also written for TV shows like Workin' Moms, Shit's Creek, Happy Together, This Hour Has 22 Minutes, and Kim's Convenient. Uh, Kim's Convenience. Sorry, I'm so nervous. Okay. <laughs> and then... <laughs> Last but not least, this guest and I have been best friends for over 30 years, competing early over winning the draw to play the bass clarinet, 
I was drawn into her incredible capacity to name animals and toys with exactly the right name. We eventually shared a love for smoking Marlboros and drinking beer in Paris, even sneaking into a Paco Rabanne fashion show at the Louvre. I got that little fact for you, Sue. And <laughs> yes. uh, watching Party of Five and 90210 every Wednesday, dancing to Mr. Jones at Stony Mondays, ordering Depends diapers for our teachers, and being... <laughs> roommates in Banff and Montreal and even being written up about in an onion headline together. At one point in our lives, I asked this guest at the Cock and Bowl if she would ever imagine a night where we would not end up there together. And someday we might just open up a llama farm with her dog, Wilma, and my cat, Steve, and call it a day. So... <laughs> Yay! <laughs> My guest Hello. is Rebecca Kohler. <laughs> Welcome, Rebecca. Thanks, everybody. Oh my God, it's so early in the morning here, and what a what a trip down memory lane I've already had. <laughs> <laughs> it's so hard to narrow it down. Oh my God, a few things. That was a great <laughs> intro, Annabelle. Good job. Yeah. Annabelle, did you remember that I was on that TV show called Trash, or was that written somewhere? No, no, I remembered that. Oh, my God. And, like, I was trying to find it on, on like, the internet yesterday. I could not find it anywhere. And you know, what else I was, you know what else I was trying to find? Was the name of that musical we were in together. I couldn't find it. I went down a vortex for an hour trying to find the name of that musical. Because <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> it was some kind of, like, monster mash. Like, Annabelle played a psychic. I was a wolf man. There were... Yeah. other creatures <laughs> Kate was uh, Victor Frankenstein because I reached out to her I was like do you remember the name of that play she's like no why I'm like no no reason <laughs> uh, I was the star of that show though you were you made me laugh so much <laughs> Well, I would love to hear your story about how you went from, you know, this musical playing Wolfman to where you are today. Oh, what and a journey what, it's been. And also, what's more fun, the musical that you did in school or real life? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, you know, it could be a tie. Oh, well, that's pretty amazing if you're paid to do something that's as fun as doing school musicals. <laughs> um, no, but that's, as soon as you start getting paid for something, it becomes less fun. I don't know if that's like a scientific fact, but it definitely feels true because then the pressure's on that's and then true. somebody's going to be mad at you if you don't do well. At the school play, they just pat you on the back and they're like, good job. <laughs> yeah, you were cute in that wolf uh, hat or whatever I was, it was. I was very cute. <laughs> But it's funny, like, so my story, and as Annabelle said, I was born in Brazil, and uh, I lived in a bunch of different countries. And I just this morning, my mother sent an article about the children of diplomats and the difficulties they face. And I bring it up because I think so I did, I traveled all over. And I think it gave me an interesting perspective on the world and life. And every time I came back to Canada, that was like, and this was what it said in the article, and it made me feel a lot better that returning quote home is always the hardest because mm -hmm. you're like an alien in your own country. But yeah, I think that gave me a, a like an outsider's perspective. So I was always like observing and I would like to credit that difficult time in my life with uh, why I became a comedian. But I think I'd always been kind of a crack up. I think it was kind of a funny kid. And 
I remember the first time I made my brother and my <clears> father <throat> laugh. And I remember thinking, holy shit, can I swear here? Of yes. Course. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was like, wow, that's an amazing feeling. I want to do that like all the time. So I think I was like 10 years old on that fateful day. So sorry, do kind you of remember yeah. what the joke was or how you made no. the laugh? Like, was it physical comedy? Did you say something? You don't remember? I, good question. I said something and I remember feeling before I said it, like what I'm about to say is special. Like Ooh. I was making my first joke. Um, right. Like it was, the intention was there. Like you knew, yes. right? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Did your temperature formulated. go up? Did you feel like a temperature in your body go up? I think I got excited. And yeah. so maybe a little bit and I said it and they laughed. And, and so, yeah, because the intention was there and it worked, I was like, wow. So I think from then on, it was kind of this dream to like do that as I didn't, I don't know if I knew exactly at the moment, uh, how one would go about that, but then I grew up watching like Evening at the Improv and, you know, stand-up comics and Saturday Night Live and SCTV. So yeah, that was always kind of in the back of my head as my dream. But I think dreams are terrifying. So after high school, I took a year off. I went to Banff to meet Annabelle. Uh, yeah. I ate a lot of chocolate and drank a lot of beer. And <laughs> I gained like 15 pounds just in my face somehow. <laughs> As one does. Still, one of my favorite stories came out of that that trip. Like, it still makes me laugh to this day every time. I Which even one? The buy yourself a box of matches, Rebecca. Oh my god. <laughs> um, should I tell it? Uh, yeah, please. I think we. I think we have to now. Yeah. Okay. No. Yeah. Okay. So one day. I was working in Banff at a place called The Fudgery, which was a chocolate <laughs> store. <laughs> and, and on top of the place being called The Fudgery, I had to wear the most embarrassing uniform. It was like a white chef's uniform, you know, like the <laughs> white pants, collared white shirt. I had to wear a maroon apron, a maroon bow tie, and a maroon <laughs> hat. It was one of those oh. like golfers hats. It was not oh, a hot look. I wasn't picking up at work. Um, anyways, <laughs> I had a smoke break. And in those days, you could still, it was in a strip mall kind of, and you could smoke inside. So I was like having a coffee and smoking a cigarette. And because I drank so much beer and ate so much chocolate, I often had a lot of gas. And, and we would sneak in and because you had keys and we would grab fudge. I don't remember <laughs> doing that. Oh my God, I was a thief. <laughs> no, I remember doing that. It was gross. Oh my they God. Were so gross. <laughs> there was so much chocolate. So, 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 yeah, so I'm standing there by myself on this break and I farted, but I was by myself. I was like, whatever, no big deal. And then, like, Five or 10 seconds later, I see a guy, this Australian snowboarder who we used to see around town <laughs> coming towards me. And I was like, oh no, I just farted. But I was like, I, I kind of sniffed the air and I was like, I think, I, I think I'm cool. I think I'm good. I think it's you know, <laughs> dissipated. Um, and then he comes over and we start chatting. We chat for a while, like a couple minutes. And he's like, well, I better go. And he's like, yeah, see you later. And then he, he, he turns to leave and then he stops and he says, oh, by the way, you should buy yourself a box of matches. <laughs> and and I said, "What do you mean?" And he said, "You know what I mean." And then he walked away. <laughs> it was probably 
Like, I bombed on stage, but that might have been the most embarrassing moment of my life. Um, oh, my God, that is amazing. You do the accent yeah. so well as well. Yeah. Well, my mother's Australian, so mm-hmm. I have um, a leg Um <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so so yeah, I lived in Banff, and then then I finally I went to Montreal to go to university. I took English and history. I was bored stiff, and meanwhile, I had a pirated version of Photoshop on my computer, and I used to go home and play with that instead of doing my English and history homework. So then I transferred from university to college. I love, by the way, I live in the States now, and I love that here they don't know the difference. Whereas in Canada, if you're like, I went to college, people are like, ew. So um, there's like a different vibe. So I went to college for graphic design. But meanwhile, the whole time I was like, I really just want to be a comedian. But also it's so funny because my dad was like, he was freaking out that I wasn't going to university. And then I was able to get an excellent job from my college diploma. So I think that changed his mind. So yeah, so I finished graphic design school and at first I interviewed for some jobs in Montreal, but they were all in that industrial, like middle of nowhere, like from the movie office space. The, <laughs> the buses only run during rush hour. Anyway, I interviewed for these horrible jobs. I was like, fuck this. So then I became a waitress and started doing stand up. <laughs> yeah, but Rebecca, can you the- talk can you talk about a mm-hmm. little bit about that decision to go on stage? Because the climate was like, there was not a lot of females going up on stage and stand-up comedy isn't what it is now which with like no. million dollars Netflix specials and you know what I mean? The tours and all that stuff that we're, I feel like everybody's keenly aware of now. Oh yeah. But at the time oh, it it's seems totally different... like such a fringe thing. You know, yeah. with the only connections to it being SNL and like the SCTV. Ron- SCTV, yeah, thank you. Yeah, Second City, yeah. It was a totally, and like, so the reason I think the thing is that once I got my graphic design diploma, in my mind, I had a backup. So mm, I think right. that made me feel safer to try. And so it was something that had been niggling at me for years. And I finally was like, I started going to the open mics to watch. And Annabelle's sister, Elizabeth, at the time was my, because I think Annabelle was maybe living somewhere else. I might Ottawa. have still been in Banff. I don't think I was there for the very start of your stand-up. Yeah. You weren't in Banff anymore, but you, anyway, oh, okay. you were somewhere. But Elizabeth used yeah. to come with me and we would watch these stand-up comics that we thought were hilarious. And looking back, they were like the worst comics ever. <laughs> I hope <laughs> some of them don't listen to this. But um, and finally, Do you want to give specific names? No. Of your, uh... <laughs> so, so finally, after like going five or six times, I was leaving. I asked the doorman, like, how does one go about getting on stage at the open mic? And the guy was like, I knew you'd be asking. Um, <laughs> he could tell I was like scoping things out. Said, all oh, you, you call, you call this number on Mondays and you leave your name. And I was like, what? Because he, and he said, you thought it would be harder. Sorry, it's not. Because yeah, you kind of don't want it to be so easy because that means you have to do it. But, right. but back to Annabelle's point, like it was, it was like this like shitty club inside a hotel there was no, in, like, well, there was internet, but there was no social media. There was no glamour. There was no glamour to this job. It Absolutely was like not. Yeah. Seedy, shitty club with seedy, shitty comics. But it was just this feeling of like, I have to, I knew that if I died and never tried it, I would regret it in the afterlife. Yeah, I was just driven to do it. And so I called that number. I left my name. I was horrified. 
I worked on my jokes. And I remember thinking, and looking back, those weren't even jokes. I don't know what I was doing up there. I was just basically telling stories. But in the night before, Elizabeth, Annabelle's sister, came over and we watched Punchline with Tom Hanks. Like, I thought this was like, like, <laughs> like homework for preparation. Um <laughs> So but at that time, you know? there was so little out there. You would have to. You'd have to, like, just grab at whatever is possible, you know? It's exactly. Yeah, like Annabelle said, there there weren't – it was hard. I couldn't find clips the way you could now. Like, Amy Schumer wasn't all over the fucking internet. So, yeah, I went and I thought, as long as I can get one laugh, I'll be happy. And I got on stage, and I don't – I barely remember that first time on stage. The time went by. I had five minutes. The time went by so fast. I remember I got on stage and the next thing I, I hear is fingers clicking because I'd gone over my time and the MC was off stage, you know, wrap it up. And I just, but people were laughing. I just remember people were laughing and that that's what I'd come to do. And I got off stage and I was just on cloud nine. Like it was the best feeling I'd ever had in my life. Wow. And a lot of comics talk about this. It's like heroin. So now you've done it. You've got the mm -hmm. good feeling and then you, the rest of your life is like chasing that dragon and it's really hard to let go of because yeah, it's like euphoric. If you're making a group of people laugh, there's nothing like it. I can't um, believe yeah. you got up the first time and killed. Well, but this is also interesting. That's really common. A lot of people do really well their first time. Apparently it's because you have serious, you have so much nervous energy. You're so excited. Nobody can resist this kind of enthusiasm. And so you you kill it because you well and also you don't ignorance is bliss you don't even know what it would be like you're not afraid of bombing because you've never done that before totally makes sense and and you're not overthinking it I think you probably aren't in your head so much you're just like no. I just yeah that no. I think comes later when you start being more analytical totally and I think audiences pick up on the fact that you're questioning yourself. So if you don't know to question yourself, you look really confident. So I did really well that time, you know, and I was like, okay, like I'm in this, this is it. So I think I started doing that open mic relatively regularly. And then, so I think it was the fifth or sixth time I'd been doing well on the Mondays and the doorman was like, I, you've been doing pretty well. How about you want to come in and do a Saturday, like a spot on a Saturday? And I was like, oh my God, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm already famous. <laughs> I thought I was climbing that ladder faster than anybody. I remember the first time I did stand up, all these comics came up to me after like, hey, that was your first time. Good job. And I was like, how long have you been doing it? I remember one guy was like, oh, like two years. And I was like, what a loser. Um, <laughs> you know, I never heard of him and he wasn't on TV. So he must suck. Not realizing at the time stand up is, I think, one of the hardest things to get consistently good at. So I get this gig for the Saturday night. I invite my boss. I had some job at the time. I don't like being an executive assistant. Essentially, I invite all these people. I ate shit. It was Ugh. just five minutes of silence. Um, and, you know, that's another interesting thing. Like once people have paid a significant amount of money, they have a higher like the vibe on a Saturday is different from the vibe on an open mic. Yes. Um, yeah. It's and true. so I came out as this like, blah, 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 blah. And they were like, who is this idiot? So yeah, I just bombed. And it was that. So that was my first encounter with bombing. But I guess it's like falling off a horse. You just have to get back on the horse. 
Yeah, like, like I'm interested to hear the psychology of getting talking me yourself too. back. Yeah, I want to know what got stage. you back on stage. Yeah, I mean, this is a great question, and I wish I could remember in more detail. Like, there's a chance I did take some time to get back, but I think there's a feeling of no, 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 no. I was doing well. Like, I'm good at this in some way. Like, something weird happened on that Saturday. But there's there's no way that, that that's the rest of my life. Like, I can get good again. You know, like, I right. think, again, it's yeah. chasing that dragon. And that day, the heroine was just made of saline. Um, <laughs> I... Yeah. So no, sorry. I'm I'm like excited to ask my next question, but go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. I think that's it. Like you you can't. Like again, it's this drive, and I think once you've had that room full of people laughing, you can't imagine not continuing to try to do that. Okay. Can you remember maybe the worst time or one of the worst times you had on stage, like in terms of bombing? To that question is one of the best moments you've had on stage. Good one. So when you asked about the bombing, I think one of the worst ones I had was at the Just for Laughs Festival in Montreal. It would have been like 2004. And I was about to move to Toronto. And and in Toronto, in Montreal at the time, there was no Yuck Yucks. And for those who don't know, Yuck Yucks is like the chain of comedy clubs in Canada, kind of like the McDonald's of stand-up. And the owner of Yuck Yucks was going to be in the front row of this show. And I was like, this is perfect. I'll kill here. And then, you know, I'll move to Toronto and he'll have no choice but to put me on his stages. And so I get on stage. And also at the time, I had a joke that was inspired by something my friend Jackie said. But the way I wrote the joke, it turned out to sound mean towards Jackie. Again, it was just the way I wrote the joke. It wasn't true. But essentially, I was insinuating that my friend Jackie was really ugly in the joke. And Jackie, being a good friend, came to support me that night, surprising me. And hi, I'm here. And I was like, fuck, like, I didn't want her to see this joke. And so that immediately kind of threw me off. And also it was in this, this comedy club that everybody had trouble doing well at. It's in the old forum or the new forum. That's oh, where the, the nest, nest, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh my yeah. God. And it was just, it was, everybody knew like the vibe was weird in there. Like it was so hard. And some, this is an interesting thing you learn as a comic, like some clubs, Oh, I'm playing that club. I'm going to kill. Oh, I'm playing that club. Mm-hmm. I'm going to eat shit. Like some clubs mm-hmm. just suck and some have a great vibes. So it was at the nest. It what my friend Jackie showed up. And also I've been put on this show. It's a long story, but like I was, I was on the show with a lot of like really accomplished stand-up comics because it was part of the just for last festival. So I was already nervous. Anyway, I get out on stage and again, it was kind of reminiscent of that Saturday night when my fifth or sixth time, it was just, you tell your first joke and nothing happened. Like, the audience just didn't like me from the get-go. They weren't buying me. And I just proceeded to do seven minutes of, of to a silent crowd. And meanwhile, Mark Breslin, the owner of Yak Yaks, was in the front row. <gasps> with And his wife was there. And I think her leg was like on his lap. And he was like stroking her leg. And I just remember feeling on stage like, oh my God, the future of my comedy career is slipping through my fingers as I speak. Um, so it wasn't just that I was bombing. It was that like, there, there, it felt like there was so much at stake. Right. And so I remember, and like then I told that's that joke your about, only chance you're ever going to have. Yeah. Yes. That's what it felt like. And then I told that joke about Jackie and she was in the crowd and, oh. it, and not, you know, not only was I, did I feel like I was being mean, it bombed. 
<laughs> I feel so, sick. This is so oh, horrible. It was really awful. And so I got upstate and then I was in that stupid old forum and I like, I went to like a far away bathroom and I think Jackie followed me and I just sobbed oh. in, in like a corridor somewhere, just uncontrollable crying. And meanwhile, Jackie, who I've just insinuated is very ugly, is like consoling me. So yeah, it was, that was probably one of the worst experiences in my stand. And there were many that followed. I mean, I bombed many times. Yeah, I definitely was there and witnessed a few of them. And like, I do remember yes, specifically when- Yes, many of them. <laughs> but there was one night where I think we were at the Comedy Works and something had happened. Maybe you, you didn't laugh or you weren't happy with yourself, like, like sometimes it was just that you actually did okay on stage, but you would just not be okay with the result anyway. Like performance. Yeah. Yeah. And for whatever reason, we were on the back fire escape, I think maybe having a smoke. I don't remember. And you were, you were crying. And I just remember at that moment thinking like, I don't know how she does this. Like just uh, living on a daily basis with p potential of rejection is hard enough and nobody's yeah. watching me for the most part. So, I mean, there was always like this kind of side of me that had awe for you to just kind of put yourself out there again and again, almost like you, it was very sadistic of you in some ways. Like, I think there has to be some kind of, like, yes. maybe it's not sadism, but like masochistic. No, masochistic. Right? Yeah, masochistic. Yeah, exactly. No, was, well, yeah, because you're like, oh, I had awe for you. Like, I'm like, you should have been like, what's wrong with this idiot? Why does she keep doing this? <laughs> clearly making her upset but yeah no because that's true sometimes you do fine but you know that you screwed up in your own personal way and that feels almost just as bad as bombing yeah people be like oh I love that photo or this wedding and I am like I can't see what other people see at all like you think oh that those wedding photos suck yeah um I've either stared at them for too long or I'm just too critical at that moment yeah yeah I mean I hate watching myself one of my best moments I think would be when I, I got I had moved to Toronto I had slowly made my way up the ladder there and I got a comedy now special which they don't make anymore but they were made by CTV and that was like the Canadian version of getting your half hour like HBO or Netflix special yeah. Um, yeah. Although, again, it was CTV and they used the same set for like 30 years. But um, <laughs> but I remember I, I had to do 44 minutes because if they could get 44 minutes out of me, they could make an hour long special. But mine was only supposed to be half an hour, but they were like, do 44 just in case. And I had to fill all that time. Anyway, long story short, I killed at that show. Uh, it was a real highlight. It was TV taping. This is something you don't want to screw up. And not only did I not screw it up, but I did great. And that was just really satisfying. And I did the 44 minutes. It, it did only end up being half an hour. But at the time, I was really proud to fill 44 minutes and do well. Um, that must have felt amazing. Yeah, it really yeah. did. And I remember I got off stage and my brother was there and he texted me like I was backstage and I got a text from him and he just said, holy fuck. And it really did feel like that kind of like, holy shit, I fucking killed that show. And uh, actually, I have a clip of that up on my YouTube and it's had over a million hits. Oh, but, my God. Whoa. But it's been up for like 10 years. So, uh, <laughs> so, yeah, so even so. Amazing. I know and I still get comments on it, both good and bad. It's kind of funny. But anyway, so that was like a really satisfying moment in my life for sure. Anyway, I know there was another question in the pipeline. 
Well, I'm just curious, just to continue on your story. So how did you go from doing stand-up to writing for television? Right. So I was doing stand-up. I moved to Toronto. And by the way, just to revisit quickly that whole Mark Breslin thing, that really did injure me because even though Mark Breslin knows some comics have bad sets sometimes, in my head, this man had seen me fail. So when I finally did approach Yuck Yucks to do their stages, it, it, I couldn't shake this feeling like that oh, this man thinks I suck. Right. And like you put me in a, yeah, I'd been tainted, you know, and it put me in a really vulnerable position in terms of like standing up for myself within that institution. Because like, I remember when they, when they finally did put me on their roster, I think I was getting like $50 a show. And years later, I remember talking to some male comedians and I was like, oh, I started at $50 and they laughed at me. Oh, um, They'd awful. all started at $85 a show. Like, oh. and, you know, and this kind of thing. So my worst enemy throughout my entire career was absolutely my lack of self-confidence and lack of, of being assertive. That was a real damaging aspect of my personality, which also, unfortunately, I think is what made me funny. So that's a catch-22. I did move to Toronto. I did start climbing the ladder. I was well-respected. And about 10 years in to doing stand-up in total, I was doing a show at some small festival and a guy who wrote for This Hour's 22 Minutes was there. And he was like, you're a great writer. Your jokes are great. You should write for television. And I was like, what? And, um, <laughs> and he helped me get a job on Sour's 22 Minutes. So that was my first writing job. And it actually didn't go very well. I had a really hard time there. And when I finished that job, I thought, well, I tried, but I guess I can't write for television. And this was a period of time where there were very few women in the comedy scene. As Annabelle said, like when I started doing stand up in, in Montreal, maybe there were 30 comics in Montreal. And I think three of us were women. Yeah, I'm tr um, I'm trying to think of the other names that were there on stage with you. There was Heidi and I don't I can't Heidi remember. Foss and uh Isabel Gaumont and then Sonali Karnick kind of anyway, but there were just there were so few of us. So and uh, when I started writing for television, there were very few women writing comedy. And this is only what 10 or so years ago. Yeah. And so I started getting these calls like we need a woman writer, which people rolled their eyes at and absolutely, uh, it's annoying to get hired as, you know, because I'm a woman, but I took advantage of that at the time. And so I just started getting these like, oh, do you want to write for this sketch show? Or I got, I started doing the debaters. Anyway, yeah, it was, it was kind of like a slow build and just these like random little one-off writing jobs. And then I got a really great agent who helped me get my first scripted job, which was Kim's Convenience. And that's where the TV writing really started to take off. Yeah. I love that show. I love that you were a part of that show because that show has made me laugh so hard. People really like it. I think they did a great job. Although I don't know if you guys know, there's a lot of controversy recently about the writer's room on Kim's Convenience. No, um, no. Yeah, because, you know, like, so that I, w I just wrote for the first season and it, it was all mostly white people, except for the playwright who created the play, Kim's Convenience, Ince Choi. And there was also Anita Capilla in the room who is half Indian. But aside from that, the rest of us were white. And it came out recently, like, you know, why is this show about Koreans being written by white people? And so that is a difficult a valid point. subject. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And, um, and yeah, you know, it's obviously that's something that's, that's getting a lot of attention for good reason these days, but it's also a really complicated issue. 
anyway, well, let's not get into that. I, I'm afraid I'm going to put my foot in my mouth. Yeah. <laughs> Can we talk about writing for working moms? In my opinion, you wrote the most beautiful episode on that show, and I'm up to date on the shows. Which one? It's the one where one of the characters has an abortion. Oh, yes. Um, and it was just so, it was incredible. It was such a beautiful episode. So I wanted, I wanted to hear about what it's like to work with Catherine Reitman and be in that writer's room. And also the character yeah. you, the character you played was absolutely <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> I love that character. Surely. Why did she never come back? Surely. Did you come up with her name? <laughs> I, I can't remember to be honest, but that show was such a great experience because Catherine Reitman was the showrunner, the star, the creator, but she'd never really been in a writer's room herself. And she hired four or five women and it's a long story, but so it was, she ended up letting a couple of the other writers go like halfway through the first season. And so it became this very small room and because she didn't fully know what she was doing, I, I hope that she would agree. You know, she, it was her first time. It was my second scripted show. And we just clicked. And I got a lot of responsibility on that show, which I probably wouldn't have gotten in another writer's room. Right. And and it was, you know, female topics, which was yeah. exciting to be writing about. And Catherine, you know, I think because she's American you know, say what you want, but they do have, like, if the CBC was like, we don't know about this, she'd be like, you know, shut up. Um, <laughs> I love than, hearing that. Yeah. Rather than like, okay, CBC, well, we're going to take your notes. It was kind of like, that. that's a dumb note. So we were able to get away with a lot of stuff that maybe we wouldn't have gotten away with with other people. And I felt very listened to in that room and respected. And, um, you know, because there is still a lot of bullshit with men and uh, writing with men. They don't listen in the same way. And I don't even mean that necessarily in a contentious way. It's more like I, I literally think they have different ways of listening that aren't as rich as the way women listen. And I also think they have trouble listening to women. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a common thing that happens where you're as a woman, you pitch an idea, nobody says anything. And five minutes later, the man pitches the same idea and everybody loves it. Mm -hmm. um, and that kind of thing does happen all the time. So yeah, working moms felt like kind of a vacation from some of that crap. And yeah, and just I got to be on set, I had good amount of respect and authority and not authority is a weird word. But yeah, I, I learned a lot from that show. And and I think we did a really great first couple seasons and gone on now to five or six seasons. Yeah. yeah, that's crazy. I remember when Hacks came out, that great show about two female comedians, and you said on Facebook, finally a show that talks about sexism and comedy. So I wanted to give you the microphone to talk about maybe some of your experiences and yeah. how you deal with it. Yeah, I mean, that hack, such a great show. And Gene Smart, I've never seen an actor play a stand-up comic so well. But so there's an episode that I talked about on Facebook for the listeners. It's Jean Smart, who's anyway, I don't know how to truncate it, but she's an older comic. She's been through the ringer. She's dealt with so many shitty male comics throughout her career. And she finally kind of calls one of them out. And this is the thing, like, especially when I started, there were no women. I was often the only woman in the room. And the comments that would be made to me, the way the men spoke to me, it was alienating and creepy and sometimes mildly, not scary, but I was really out there by myself, it felt like. And I also talked about sex on stage, which 
I think made the male comics think that they could talk to me like I was a whore. Yeah, it was like I, an open invite because you seemed yeah. open about it on stage. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, you know, those are my jokes. And meanwhile, I'm just like a nice girl from Ottawa. Um, <laughs> and, and you know, it's a really gritty, <laughs> grimy business. And, and you know, like co- club managers would massage me. And, and, you know, I'd have to be in these cars with these comics who would tell me how I should do my jokes. And, Ugh. um. It yeah, was... there was a lot of, t- I witnessed a lot of conversations where you were talked down to by other mm-hmm. male comics who were in the exact same position as you were. And yeah. it was just like par for the course at that time, you know, I, I don't even know. It really it, was. Yeah. I don't even know how much we even noticed it because the culture at that time was just so not for women. It was so, so much of it. We just put up with without even realizing we were putting up with it. Yeah. I mean, I don't, you know, there was no me too movement. I just presumed this is what you had to do. And yeah. and, I, and that's kind of what Gene Smart's character says in that show. Like, who was I going to complain to? And if you complain about something like that in those days, you just wouldn't get booked. That's right. Like, yeah. you know, it was like, sit down and shut up or get out. And, yeah. and so, but in this episode of the show, when she does call this guy out, I think I said on Facebook, I sobbed. I didn't even realize it brought back all of the, like wow. Annabelle said, I didn't realize at the time that it was wrong. It was just par for the Mm -hmm. course. And so this episode kind of gave me license to be like, oh, it wasn't okay. And, Mm -hmm. and all these fucking guys who psychologically, I think, kept me down because I didn't have that inner, like some of my favorite comics who I know personally, like some of the best comics are crazy and in real (laughs) life. And I almost wonder if you need that crazy to because they have this vision of themselves where they're like fucking amazing and I'm the best and like I never had that I'm like I hope it's okay that I'm here sorry to bother you with my joke um and let's not forget that you also thanked a toilet once for letting you use (laughs) (laughs) what a random but it's true I did it's because we were living in Banff and everything was service industry oriented so you were constantly saying like thank you come again you know thank you thanks you know have a great day thank you and I guess I was really tired one day and I used the toilet and when I went to flush it I said thank you um Um, best story ever. What what do you do if you're in a writer's room and something like that happens now? Post me too. Are you comfortable saying something about it or no? I mean, Mm -hmm. it's a great question. But again, if I like, I worked on a show a year or so ago that was with men and I was the only woman aside from the script coordinator and they were actually men who I knew and I liked as people but I was constantly dismissed in a nice way but Mm -hmm. it's as if they couldn't process the fact that my ideas might have validity would you say it's kind of hard to call out to at the time sometimes I go into a photography shop but because it's gear Mm -hmm. It's mostly run by men and they see like a woman yeah. walk in and they go, she's like here for her husband or she doesn't know anything about anything. Yeah. And so when I start talking to them, I have to fight through their doubt that I know what I'm talking about, you know, yeah. to get what I want. And it's really I'm frustrating. so glad that you brought that up, Annabelle, because I think that's one of the hardest things about it too, is 
I've been in situations where it's happening. I'm wondering if it's happening. What do I do about it? And it's not till 30 minutes post situation that I say, hey, yeah, that that was sexism. And why didn't I do something about it? I think sometimes you don't even realize what's happening until much later. And I think at the same time, there's such a, you know, you don't want to be the angry woman. You don't want to be the, you don't want to appear to have a chip on your shoulder. And and I don't think that way. So like when, if I was running a photography shop and someone came (laughs) in, I, I wouldn't be like, oh, this person doesn't know what anything right based on how they look but I really do think that that happens but I don't make the assumption that that's happening and I think you're starting from yeah well and I think what's the scariest part is that those guys don't know what's happening either yes Mm. yeah and that's why it's so difficult to call it out because if they knew and you said hey you're being sexist they'd be like oh shit yeah sorry but Uh you say hey you're being kind of sexist they're like what no I'm not Mm -hmm. I'm just I'm just existing excuse me like how can you fix something if you don't even know if it's a problem? It's so ingrained in our society. And like even the best men we know, I think yeah. can be extremely sexist. And but they consider themselves to be progressive. Yes. Like the future yeah. female. But they don't know how to listen to you. So <laughs> so and like and so you're right though. If you call them out, even today, if you call somebody, hey, you're I think you're being kind of dismissive because I'm a woman. Again, they would take offense and think you were crazy. And Probably I don't think get they on absorb the defensive. it. Totally. And they'd be hurt too. So even, yeah. They think they're trying. Oh, and then yes. you get into the whole broken male ego, which is just. Oh. Oh, don't even get me started. (laughs) And that's, that's why I love when they say that women are more sensitive and more emotional. And there was an episode in Sex in the City where Carrie said that, you know, she's like, they're there. I can't remember her exact wording, but she really calls it out. And then she says, and those are my male friends. And yeah, yeah. And I just I was like, that was one of the first times where I saw it called out that men are so sensitive and so emotional. Yeah. Oh, and way more fragile. I think. Oh, so much more fragile. In a lot of ways. And, yes. you know, I mean, I think I'm considered fragile in my family because I cry. And mm-hmm. I hate that equivalence, they... though, because like I will get into an argument with Dave and I'll start crying. He's like, stop crying because he he thinks that I'm trying to manipulate him with tears. And I'm like, oh. no, this is just the way that I'm crying. It's just the way that I'm crying. Like, I have to express myself this way. And my frustration's coming out like... It's it's not a weakness to cry. Yeah. No. Guys, I have to go, but I just need to say, Rebecca, I adore you. I cannot wait to see more of your comedy. And this has been so much fun. And I can't wait to hear the rest of what you guys talked about. Thank you so much for coming. Have a a great day. Thank you. you. Bye. Bye. Talk soon. So wait, what were we talking? Oh, yeah. I don't know. Again, like it's me too movement has done so much for us, but there's still all of these, like, you know, after George It's not fixed. No, not at all. And, you know, people are like, do better. Like men, I don't know any man who's like sitting down to actually understand what these dynamics are like, these invisible dynamics. Yeah, true. So I think what we need is just more women and other yeah. marginalized, or we, I guess yeah. I shouldn't include, I don't know if I'm allowed to include women in marginalized groups, but so that there's a group of people who can be like, no. Yeah, and more shows, frankly. I know, Angelique, you wanted to talk about. Yeah, I just did. Like I that. wanted to talk about and just like that. And, mm-hmm. you know, I wanted to talk about sexism and ageism, but I yeah. think they're intertwined. Annabelle and I were out for drinks last weekend and we were saying and just like that how imperfect it is but at the same time 
thank God there's one show on TV with four you older know, women. Four, older well, women. actually, there's more who are over 50 and how um, that's so rare. And so we're forgiving of so much about the show because we just want to see what we're seeing on that show. And I just wanted to get your take on it and what you're getting out of the show. So I also thought it was extremely imperfect. I had a lot of problems with it. Because so I think one of them was that they wrote those women. That's not how, like, if we all went for drinks, that's, I know we're not as old as them, but we're not that much younger. That's not how we talk. No. Um, yeah. Uh, they all have these kind of preconceived, like, uh, a man took a shit in my hand. That's that's what I talk about when I go for <laughs> drinks with my friends. I'm not I'm not this kind of stodgy. I know that's a random thing to say, but they weren't talking real for real enough for me. And I know they yeah. have to write a TV show, and these people have to have these perceptions of the world to keep the show moving. But anyway, but yes, okay. To your point, thank God there are these four women on our screen, and you know, with with older faces except for Charlotte it makes you know it does make me feel better it's the same way when the, how the gap now has different size models so you mm -hmm. can see how the clothes look on different and you're like oh I'm a normal and so also seeing older women on on screen I'm like oh I don't have to feel as ashamed about my forehead 11. Yeah and I was actually really happy when Carrie decided not to have plastic surgery that that for me was a win on the show even though I find so much of the show is really tone deaf I really, I liked that. No, me too. You're right. That was a really important moment. Was somebody going to say something? That, yeah, I think I, I often will look for a show that feels like something like my life because I often feel like I, I'm not visible. All of this work that we've done, everything that we have been accumulating is somehow invisible. Yeah. I am more sure of who I am. And yet now I don't have ability uh, that I had when I was younger. I, I don't understand why that is. Well, I mean, I think there is definitely, I'm sure, I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but I do notice, you know, when I walk into a bar now, even if I look amazing, I don't get the same, there's an attention that wanes as you get older. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like, it's almost like they can tell from the corner of their eye, like that's an older <laughs> woman. I'm not even going to turn my head. It's like an energy. And like, you know, you mentioned having kids. There's also something because I don't have kids and there's this feeling of, oh, I'm not young and hot. And I also am not a mother. So why do right. I even exist? Like wow. I don't have either of those because at least if you're a mother, like, oh, well, you, you know, you used your body to procreate and that's what you're supposed to do. And you're a mom or you're a hot ingenue. But if you're neither right. of those things, what are you? That's, Man, you're just an old yeah, lady. I'm just an old lady. I just heard a great podcast and it was a woman in her 50s and she was saying, we get divided into three categories in terms of our age. And you really jump from this middle phase to all of a sudden being seen as a crone before you're a crone. And so there's a third phase yeah. that needs to come in. And she called it the queen phase. And she said, we have to put this out there. And I heard it on Elise Lunin's podcast called Pulling the Thread. And I thought that was so great because to your point, Annabelle, we feel full of wisdom. We feel like we've accomplished so much. We're confident. And yet, where are we being represented in a way that has to do more than what our face looks like? Yeah. yeah and like as, as men get more and more knowledgeable, they're like, they're considered wise and accomplished and experienced and we're considered washed up. Yes, exactly. Also, they're just, and because there's no visibility of what our lives are actually like, 
Like I'm in improv, right? And I'm one of the older people there. And often when people find out my age, they go, what? Like, you don't look that age. I'm like, yes, I I actually do look 43. I just, maybe your idea of what 43 looks like. Yeah, exactly. Usually on TV, someone that age is played by someone younger. Yeah. I mean, the whole beauty industry, when when I was looking at magazines, is they were showing skin cream and the model was 12 years old. (laughs) So there's such a, there's such a disconnect. And so my whole life, I grew up being terrified of being in my 40s. And then I'm in my 40s now. And I'm like, this actually isn't that bad. No. It's like this fear that is instilled in us. And then how many times have you found yourself looking at someone, you're like, she looks pretty good for her age. And then you realize, no, we've been completely lied to about what women actually look like. And actually women look great their whole lives. Mm-hmm. And yeah. we're told that we don't because it seems as if we're just valued as like a sidekick character. Yeah, so, and again, like just this idea of having it on screen. Like even I was watching Inventing Anna about Anna Delvey. Um, oh yeah, okay. And and Anna Chomsky from Veep. Also, she played My Girl many many years ago. There's a scene where she's like at the doctor and she's lying down and she had those neck rolls where the skin gets kind of loose and I was like I couldn't even concentrate on the on the what was happening in the moment because I was like oh she has she has those she's a real person yeah yeah but it's so true I mean you and I we were talking about next last week because yeah it's one of these things that you don't think about when you're younger and then like I read What's her face's book? Uh, Nora Ephron. Nora Ephron. Yeah. Um, and I was like, well, I'm not worried about my neck yet. And then like six months later, I, I am. I know. <laughs> it just I know you happens. start seeing these things happen and you're like, oh my God, it's happening. But yeah, <laughs> if I saw more of those neck rolls regularly, I think I would be like, oh, that's just normal. Whereas when it happens to me alone, where I, you know, when I accidentally turn my iPhone camera on myself. Which is horrifying. Thing, yeah. <laughs> uh, I feel like some kind of like faulty defective human because this thing looks so gross but if I saw it every day I'd be like oh it's normal um, yeah I, I actually I like that and just like that like Carrie's neck is totally an older neck and I didn't yeah. even really process that until halfway through like it wasn't even something that stood out to me until I took a closer look you know yeah Um, so, and, but in terms of like women's stories, it's, I mean, I think, and again, I, this is a touchy area. I think the focus of the the industry right now isn't really on women per se. Like, I mean, it is maybe more than it was 10 or 20 years ago, but there are other people that are being highlighted. Mm -hmm. Um, and, (laughs) and so I feel like women kind of got a few minutes there but we're not the priority at this time. And so hopefully that will, I really am afraid of things, these things. I think also like another thing I think about is, so should we be looking to other industries and Uh, where are our role models and where are you looking? And I, I, sometimes I just challenge myself with that question because I think if you can see Well, what other industries though? Like Forbes? Like, should I be looking at like, I don't know. That's my question is where are the role models? And I'm wondering for you, who are your role models? Where do you look? And, and is it Forbes? I try to look at journalism as well. And, and right now I see the Brene Browns and people like that, who are women who have a voice, who are changing the culture. So I look there, I look at 
the morning show. I look at what Reese Witherspoon is doing. So I feel like it's getting better. But to your point, there just still isn't enough. It's not it's still not the norm. No, no, um, I do. I think that there needs to be a lot more representation out there, especially in TV and in movies and online. Like that's what we've all been consuming for the last couple of years, especially. Yeah. And without that, we don't have the I don't see it in books very much either. Like the books that I read, it's really hard to find anything about a woman over 40 who isn't like insane or wondering if she killed someone. Like it's, it's you know yeah. what I mean? Like there's still I do not know a lot of content yeah. out there for women. And also the stuff on TV is often very sort of like not, still not accurate or representative. Like, and just like that is, is just not representative of what my life is like as an older woman at all. But at least I'm well, seeing Well, their problems are ridiculous. Ridiculous. They're yeah. not problems. No. There's still a lot of judgment in that show. Like the way, like, uh, you know, I'm not condoning cheating on your husband, but like Miranda's clearly having this kind of, well. Crisis. Crisis, midlife crisis, or, you know, like, oh my God, maybe I'm a lesbian. Maybe I want more for my life. And. I would never throw judgment on my friends for that. That's I would... such a good point, Rebecca. I remember seeing those scenes where both of them are judging her. And I was really yeah. surprised yes. that this show where Carrie was cheating on someone who was married, looking no, for yeah. advice from her best friend. And the advice was men have been doing this for a long time. It's fine. And yet one of the characters do it you know, the shoes on the other foot. And all of a sudden she's getting this judgment. And I remember yeah. thinking, this is not the show I signed up for because no, why and should she stay miserable in this marriage? Exactly. Yeah. And um, Annabelle and I talked about the scene where it actually happens where Miranda has sex with Che in the kitchen. Yeah. And then Carrie's like, what are you doing? I know. That does not feel like, authentic to the character at all. No, or the friendship. And so I do. And, and so I think there are still these tropes. And like, I don't know who's writing that show. I think. It, well, I mean, I saw a picture of the writer's room. There seemed to be some women in there. But I actually listened to the podcast. So Michael Patrick King and two of the female writers do a podcast after every episode and talk about what they were setting up and what, what they were exploring. And it's, oh. it, I would say a lot of insights into the writer's room would be on that podcast. And right. I, I think you'd find it really interesting. And Oh, that's really interesting. I, I would um, encourage you to listen to one episode. And I think <laughs> I'd love to hear your insights after that. Yeah, because it does it does feel like there's still this kind of, like male gaze on these female characters coming yes. from somewhere. Totally. And I, I think I felt the same way even at the end of Girls. I felt like Judd Apatow got his foot in there somewhere because the way that show ended was not the way the show started. Right. Um, and yeah, I think women might still have trouble expressing what it is to be a woman without feeling like they might get judged for it. Like, I almost wonder if women feel like they have to throw some judgment on like a flawed female character. And also make it just so ridiculous and extraordinary versus the mundane of like our lives, which can be, I wish somebody would take a moment to parse that out and like show us the sort of beauty of that in our lives and the humor in that too. I just wish it would be less hyper. Oh, I, I feel the same. And like, uh, I don't know if you guys have seen the show togetherness. 
No. Um, I love it. it. I just, I love that show. Amanda Peet in that show is so amazing. I'm so her. glad you bring that up. And also, are you it's watching excellent. somebody somewhere? No, but I'll write it down. It's, um, the, it's, it's Bridget Everett, the comedian. Oh, I, I saw the first episode. Yeah. The only but, reason I bring yeah. it up is because the executive producers are the Duplass brothers, just like togetherness. So I was wondering right. if you'd seen oh, that. Oh, okay. But it is well, her show. And- I just want to make yeah. it really clear. It's her story and her show. And I, yeah. I love it. I love well, it so much. I'll keep watching. But, but to Annabelle's point, like togetherness is about like, you know, a family, a uh, husband and wife and their kids. And, and it is kind of about that mundacity. And okay. I often, I often watch shows and I'm like, why does everybody have to be fucking everybody? And yes. um, why does everybody, and there's maybe a murder. And I'm like, what about just regular people? Like, I, I get it. You want something salacious to keep your, you, you want to keep people coming back for more, but I'm a big fan of just like great jokes and writing to depict me or you. Yeah. And like the, sometimes the funniest things are like the simplest things, right? Some of the best improv I've seen and like what I learn in improv all the time is don't go to those places like murder and drugs and sex and all that stuff like that that's just too easy in terms of comedy fodder and that what's actually really wonderful are those moments where you're just sitting quietly and having like a coffee or reading a book whatever it is there's these moments that are just not explored in the same way that I wish were because there's so much there that's that's, There's so much richness yeah. and beauty in the everyday in like how a person sits and has their cup of coffee in the morning and getting your kids off to school. These are beautiful moments. Like so many, I was having a conversation the other day with someone who was saying that their kids don't talk. And she was saying, and, and then all of a sudden her son after work will all of a sudden have like open up and all this stuff will come out. And, and you don't know when your kids are going to start sharing with you. And so, yeah, to your point, Let's have a show called the Mundane Show. <laughs> yeah, I think it would Mondacity. actually be really interesting. Yeah. yeah. Or like even like you're talking about morning coffee. Like I want to see somebody sitting alone, having a coffee and then lifting a butt cheek and farting. Like, yes, <laughs> exactly. You know, um, those regular things we do when we're by ourselves or with our loved ones. There's there's so many little details in there that nobody seems. It's like it's like, no, let's have this person become, I mean, what, there's nothing wrong with, you know, Miranda discovering she might be gay, but there's also a lot of like, we feel like we have to go to these, oh fuck, now I'm going to put my foot in my mouth again, but this no, and like, I want space. every, I want all, everybody to be depicted on television. Uh, so that's a bad example actually, but it is when we feel that we have to have, you know, like this game of Thrones, like I'm having sex with my brother um, yes. to keep people coming back. Yeah, to keep people interested, you know? Yeah, yeah. I'm like, well, what about Miranda's terrible backpack? Can we talk about that? It's in every episode, and it's just awful. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But you know what's what's so interesting is like a show and and just like that comes out, and and all of a sudden it gets just all the the stones are thrown at it because there's only one. You know, if there were 10 shows about women over 50, then we could like have a real conversation. But at the same time, it's almost set up to fail because there's just not enough you're right well and that was the whole thing coming up as a female comic if you did badly it was oh yeah women aren't funny right yeah but if a man does badly nobody's like men are bad at comedy yes had a bad night also like i remember a lot you would talk about sex on stage and they'd be like oh she's so blue with her comedy and it's so dirty so dirty and it's like she's doing exactly what all the other men are doing 
It's yeah. just that it's coming out of a woman's mouth and that's yeah. the only difference. Yeah. So I know you guys have to go. I just want to ask one more question, which is, is are things different now, Rebecca? In comedy? Yeah. Sorry, that was a broad I, I question. Mean, yes. Um, <laughs> I mean, I th yes, they're so different, especially here in LA. Like I go to these shows. Uh, it's like, you know, all women and or, or like half the half the performers are LGBTQ, uh, you know, which again, I, I have a lot of gay friends in comedy who found it really hard coming up. Um, I'm the woman, they're the gay, you know, mm -hmm. and also social media has changed. Like also when I started doing stand up, as Annabelle said earlier, it was the fringes. We were like the island of misfit toys. We were nerds. We were not attractive. We didn't dress well. Mm -hmm. Comedy now is like, it's hip. It's a fashion show. Like it's a very different industry altogether. And I think there's a lot of great stuff in there because there are uh, so many different people being represented, but it's also become in some ways, like it's not necessarily how funny you are. It's how many Instagram followers you have. Mm -hmm. And like, that's a whole other conversation, but it's definitely better. But as we've also discussed, it's not fixed. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, especially like those guys who think they're progressive in a writer's room who are actually sexist, like we're, we're going to be dealing with those guys, I think, for at least a few more years. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. yes, yes. Well, thank God for Catherine Reitman's of the world. Yes, exactly. Wow. Well said. Well, thank you so much. I could talk to you all day long, but obviously, oh, you know, you probably, pleasure. maybe you'd like to have your breakfast. <laughs> you... <laughs> I don't need breakfast, but I will, uh, I don't know, do a crossword or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're welcome back anytime. I love chatting with you. I love your insights. You're so interesting and funny. And this was a huge honor for me. And again, like I said, I thought you wrote the most beautiful episode of working moms well thank you i'm touched by this and it's been a pleasure ladies so thank nice you talking so much. to you rebecca you too as always annabelle <laughs> okay bye have a good thank day you. you guys are you still there yes i am hold on yeah i'm leaving <laughs> <laughs> oh my god that was amazing that was fun so, that was really fun that was yeah. really fun it's so How funny because I, I yeah like i know her so well but it's not like we sit there and dissect her her life and like you know a lot, often a lot of the things that we we're talking about I was just present for but we weren't I wasn't like her decision to go into comedy is not necessarily a clear one for me it was just a part of like our lives so it was just interesting to hear someone tell their life story especially someone that you know so well you know but that's wild that you've been friends for 30 years and how much over changed 30 years yeah and yet the issue is still there. Yeah. Hopefully in some time we'll be able to look back on this and say things have changed. Yeah, I think things change and then they don't change and it's it's a back and forth. But then if you look back on the way things were, it's definitely changed a lot, but there's still, yeah, as Rebecca was saying, it's still not fixed at all. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you deal with it when you're, when you're getting your camera and someone is clearly doubting you um I just tend to roll my like internally roll my eyes yeah. like oh here we go I just have to really prove that I actually know what I'm talking about and watch them kind of try and not look shocked on their face <laughs> it's ridiculous well everyone that's our show for today You can follow Rebecca Kohler on Instagram at Rebco, that's spelled R-E-B-K-O-H. If you enjoyed our chat today, please share a screenshot on social media or follow Flip Flops Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also send me a note. I love when you do that.
Thank you so much for listening and talk soon.